Welcome to Class Session 35, which is a special class session in more than one sense, unfortunately. On the one hand, Professor Michael Drought was our guest for this class, and you will hear him talk about the fascinating textuality of Tolkien's work, the complicated ways in which Tolkien self-consciously constructed the story as not only a story in itself, but a written document with a complicated manuscript history. On the other hand, this class was sadly the victim of some technical problems. Not one, but two different microphones failed intermittently, so only snatches of the recording remain. I do have a compensation to offer, however. In addition to the fragments of this class and Professor Drought's formal lecture that I have already posted, I also got a chance to sit down and record an hour-long conversation with Professor Drought on the morning before class. When I can get that edited, I will post that conversation as well, and Professor Drought and I actually talked over some of the same ideas that we went on to discuss with the students in class later on, so we'll be able to recover some of the material that way. Anyway, on to the beginning of class. So uh, today we'd like to welcome Professor Michael Drought. Uh, uh, many of you uh, got to come and hear his talk yesterday, um, and he's going to join us today to talk about the stairs of Kirathungol and Shelob's lair and... As much of the first three chapters of The Return of the King as we can get through. Um, though I have a suspicion we're going to continue to be behind. But anyway, we'll see what we can do. Um, the, the moment I wanted to start with today, actually, is the passage we got right to but did not quite discuss. And that is the conversation that Frodo and Sam have on the stairs about stories. Do you remember this? Blank looks. How many of you brought the two towers with you? Many of you still have it? Okay, good, good. Let's read some bits to start with. This is on page 696. Sam begins by talking about the motivations of people in the stories and how his own perspective on stories and re the reception of stories has changed from being in one, right? Frodo has said, I don't like anything here at all. But so our path is late, he says. Yes, that's so, said Sam. And we shouldn't be here at all if we'd known more about it before we started. But I suppose it's often that way. The brave things in the old tales and songs, Mr. Frodo. Adventures, as I used to call them. I used to think that they were things the wonderful folk of the stories went out and looked for because they wanted them. Because they were exciting and life was a bit dull. A kind of sport, as you might say. But that's not the way of it, but the tales that really mattered are the ones that stay in the mind. Folks seem to have been just landed in them, usually. Their paths were laid that way, as you put it. But I expect that they had lots of chances, like us, of turning back, only they didn't. And if they had, we shouldn't know, because they'd have been forgotten. We hear about those as just went on. And not all to a good end, mind you. At least not to what folk inside a story and not outside it call a good end. You know, coming home and finding things all right, though not quite the same, like old Mr. Bilbo. But those aren't always the best tales to hear, though they may be the best tales to get landed in. I wonder what sort of a tale we've fallen into. Think about the suggestions of that last question. I wonder what sort of a tale we've fallen into. You think about that. We've talked about some of these issues before. This is a mo the moment in the story um, when the question of the story as a story that is being written and told, comes up most clearly. Sam begins to reflect on it after this, right? He thinks about their story being told. Still, I wonder if we shall ever be put into songs or tales. 
We're in one, of course, but I mean put into words, you know, told by the fireside or read out of a great big book with red and black letters years and years afterwards. And people will say, let's hear about Frodo in the ring. And they'll say, yes, that's one of my favorite stories. Frodo was very brave, wasn't he, Dad? Yes, my boy, the famousest of the hobbits. And that's saying a lot. It's saying a lot too much, said Frodo, and others might agree with him, though, for different reasons. Um, one of the defining factors of hobbit society, right, was that they didn't do all that much. Um, yeah, Derek, what are you thinking? Well, um, we said um, they've come back to their home but not find it the same. To me, that foreshadows when Saruman enters the Shire and um, plays it. Of course, it's going to be quite a lot not the same when they actually do get home. Um, and, of course, that's an interesting point to what's going on here, right? They're talking about their story as a story, and especially when we come back having read the end and returned to it, we can see ways in which the story that is going to happen is actually being reflected or considered. I mean, one of the questions that Sam is bringing up here is what is the definition of a good ending? Um, remember there's a conversation that Bilbo and Frodo had that was like this in Rivendell in some ways. Um, Bilbo has thought of an end to his book, which he's now thinking he's not going to be able to end. Uh, you know, when he says at the Council of Elrond, um, I had thought of a good ending to my book. Does anyone recall the ending that he had thought of, Jordan? And he lived happily ever after until the end of his days. Yes. And they were extraordinarily long, as is added in some places, yes. That's the ending that he, And then he says, well, I, I have to write a new ending because there will be at least a bunch of more chapters and that one looks like it, it won't come true. Um, and Bilbo asks Frodo, once Frodo volunteers, you may remember that Bilbo asks Frodo, he says, you know, have you thought of an ending for your book? And Frodo says, yes, several. And they're all dark and dreadful. And Bilbo says, that won't do. Books ought to have good endings. And here's again Sam raising the question, what is a good ending to a story? This is one of those really complicated moments in Tolkien to talk about because there's so many levels upon which you can discuss it. Right? There's so many, because it's one of the moments where he's kind of pulling back and opening up for us this story, connections within the story, the writing of this story, the transmission of the story. He we have Sam speculating about people later on retelling the story. Um, I probably have language on the brain, but it strikes me that um, he's characterizing story as something that's inevitable. You know, wherever there are people, there is language. And whenever there's language, there's going to be people telling stories to one another and trying to communicate the things that they find the most important. The occasion that he theorizes, right, the occasion that he imagines it's interesting because notice there are two different ones one is the little conversation that he narrates the verbal storytelling father to child right what's the other one not that it's necessarily completely different but in a big in a great big book with red and black letters that sounds more formal. I mean, maybe you would read to your kids out of a great book, big book written in red and black letters, but a couple different ways. Stories can be preserved, transmitted. What is that big book with red and black letters? Does it exist in the story? Go ahead. I think it's Bilbo's book. Bilbo's book, except Bilbo never got to write the Frodo and Sam parts. Yeah, well, it's 
It's the book as it's going to be finished. Right. But who wrote them within the within the story? And Sam, right? We don't know which parts Frodo wrote. We assume that at the end, when we look at the book, right, that it's the it, that Bilbo wrote the Hobbit, that Frodo wrote the Lord of the Rings up to the point at which Frodo departs, and then Sam, it's your book now, Sam, continue it. So it's a foreshadow. It's a little bit of an, an irony play since you as the, the reader, Tolkien doesn't use irony very much, but he uses it here in that you as the reader know that that book is going to exist because it's in your hand in a, in a certain way, but it's also not exactly that point because the, the Lord of the Rings that you hold there, if you go to Appendix F, Tolkien says, this is not just a translation of the Red Book of Westmarch, it's that, but it's also, it passed through multiple levels, and scribes added things, and there's a recension that went in Rohan, and one in Gondor, and one in the Tower Hills, and, and they each have different histories, and, and different things are added in there, because very much something like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, uh, which I don't know how many of you looked at in any way, but there's these various versions of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, so someone made a centralized one, in the 10th century, and then different copies were sent out to different places, and then people kept adding to it. So there's a northern recension and a southern recension, and the, the Peterborough Chronicle, which continues past the Norman Conquest. And when you try to edit the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, what is it? Does it include everything? Does it include the things that are left out of one and put into the other? And Tolkien's doing that at different levels to, to help create his illusion and also that, that it creates these ironies. So I, I kind of, there's this idea that, aha, this is the metafictional moment. This proves that Tolkien is a postmodernist, right? Because he has his characters thinking about themselves being in a story. I mean, Borges did this in the 30s. So it's not anything, you know, oh, you have to wait till Gabriel Garcia Marquez or those people have their characters stand up and say, hey, I don't want to be in this book anymore. It stinks. Make a new story for me, please. Right? It's not quite that. But it is at different layers. And so one of the things we have to think about is in the fictional frame, Sam edited The Lord of the Rings. Sam could have put this all in there, whether it was, and I'm going to have to do the little stupid scare quotes, right? Whether it was really what Sam and Frodo said at that particular moment. It's put in there. Is it by Sam? Is it by Eleanor? Is it by Findigil, the king's scribe, who heard the story from, from Pippin before Pippin died in Minas Tirith, you know, X number of decades later? Is it a scribe that comes down? And this is a, an important point of what Tolkien thinks of as the Lord of the Rings. That's his whole conceit, that he's not writing it, he's translating it. But he's translating it from materials that many other authors have compiled. And if you take it further, if the other part is the Silmarillion, which would have been originally translations from the Elvish by B.B., mm -hmm. which we can, that's the other book, right, that Bilbo's made extracts of Elven lore in Rivendell, which he's gotten from books that other people wrote, which must have been in Elvish that Bilbo read, supplemented by conversations with Elrond and Glorfindel and Aristor and, and other people like that. And then you guys already read the Silmarillion, right? So think of the, the descriptions of some things in the pre-Elf First Age. So before the first elves were even awakened, right, there's stuff in the Silmarillion. Who wrote that? I can't really... Huh? Tom Bobadil. Excellent. But who wrote... Who's supposed and, to have written those things? The Valor. You can't imagine, like, Monway sits down and says, like, Okay, let's see. Time to work on my memoirs today. Yeah. And another part of it, as, as the scholar Gergai Nash points out, is that a lot of these pieces read like, he calls it submerged poetry. Right? So uh, 
mountains they raised, and Melkor felled them, seas they delved, and Melkor filled them, and so forth. And you realize that it's very poetic. You go through and like put little bolds on all the alliteration and stuff. So then you can think, okay, that passage in the Silmarillion was clearly adapted from a poem. Maybe Bilbo read an epic poem about the, the pre-two-trees uh, times, and he wrote it down here, and then Tolkien translated it, and then we have the extra level of Christopher Tolkien Trans, you know, excerpted it and, and created something else. And it gets a dizzying number of, of frames. But there's got to be a reason for that. Maybe Melker, when he was trapped in the void, decided to write stuff down. There we go. Or it was Sauron's, like Sauron's memoir, Sauron's blog. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I spy with my giant fiery eye. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the... Remember that they were, we've talked a little bit about, I mean, I talked a little bit about the manuscript history of The Hobbit and how he goes back and makes changes after writing The Lord of the Rings and the way in which he incorporates those changes to the manuscript within the story itself. And there's a passage in the appendices where he comments on the editorial practices of Frodo and Sam, that they left, that some of those manuscripts survive of the original, of the original story as written by Bilbo, the, 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 the wrong one, because Frodo and Sam couldn't bear actually to change anything that the old Hobbit had written himself, he says, right? So what's so confusing when you when you come to it, if you read The Lord of the Rings after 1951, which I think we can all agree we all did here, uh, <laughs> and there's all this thing. This is different than I've told the story before. The first, thing, what do you mean it's different than you've told the story before? Like I read The Hobbit, you, you jumped over Gollum, you know, you had the ring, and it's only if you did archival research that wasn't really even easily possible that you can find out the whole details of the Bilbo story and of Gollum offering to give him the ring, you know, and yeah. and, and that that whole thing. So it creates a another level of puzzles as a reader, another textual puzzle, and it's this this textuality of the Lord of the Rings. People want to know why is the Lord of the Rings. Good. They only have to why is it good? How can I say it's good? How do you know it's good? I don't know how it's good, but I can I think we can explain some of the effects of it. And the effects of that deep and rich textuality is why compared to the Sword of Shannara or the Belgariad or the other derivative fantasy works, the Lord of the Rings just fundamentally feels different when you read it. Because it's got that whether it's fake textuality, actually it turns out a lot of it's real textuality because Tolkien wrote like 16 versions of things. And he even, in the Silmarillion stuff, after he'd written the main narrative, he decided to go down and write it, rewrite it as all as annals. As in this year this happened, in this year this happened. So he's already written the story part, but now I'm going to write it as entries in a chronicle. And why? Because he's building up these, these layers and layers of textuality. I mean, what, it's not exactly what he wanted. And Christopher Tolkien has said a bunch of times that he's, he wishes he hadn't done the Silmarillion the way he did without a framing narrative. Yeah. And, you know, wishes he'd done this and included that, and I did this wrong and everything because I didn't understand the mess of papers. But I think overall what Tolkien wanted was something like the 12 volumes history of Middle-earth, where you'd go and, I want to read the stories from the elves, you know, in the, the old poetry that's so difficult, and I want to read it from the point of view of the children's story. Uh, in John Ratliff's history of the Hobbit, Tolkien started to rewrite the entire Hobbit, not just the chapter. He was going to rewrite the whole Hobbit in the style of the, the Lord of the Rings and of the late Lord of the Rings, of the Return of the King, rather than the Fellowship of the Ring. And he wrote a number of pages and showed it to them, and they said, this is nice, but it's not the Hobbit. Don't change the Hobbit. And so then he comes up sort of with this conceit that as this all this original material, you know, there and back again, someone made it into a children's book. Some Hobbit scribe intermediary made it into a children's book. 
and that's what we have. Versus if they had taken Bilbo's original, it would have been consistent with the Lord of the Rings and his memoirs and his story in a different way. So you've got this really rich textuality that that only, in other works that I can think of, only works of living traditions, like Arthurian literature have. Though I think there's a good comparison to be made to Mallory. Mm-hmm. Though Mallory had real sources. He, didn't he did have real sources. sources. Who didn't make up all of them anyway. Just, you know, he did just make stuff up if he didn't have, you know, I don't know if it's in there, I'll put something. And a couple times when he draws attention ostentatiously to translating when he's making stuff up and uh, things like that. But yeah, I mean, and, and the implications of this go beyond moments like this one in the stairs of Kirathungal when they're talking explicitly about stories. Uh, if you consider for a minute the passage in The Return of the King, when the Rohirrim are setting out, the bottom of page 785, the end of the Muster of Rohan chapter, and so without horn or harp or music of men's voices, the great ride into the east began, with which the songs of Rohan were busy for many long lives of men thereafter. And then we get one. From dark Dunharrow in the dim morning, with Thane and Captain rode Thangle's son. To Edoras he came. Who wrote this song? And when was this song written? Yeah, and the book plays the irony game again, which is just, just gave away the ending. Right? Where Thanon said, if Sauron wins, no one will make songs. Songs many years after. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not reading now. I don't know how it turns out. Right, right. I mean, and even, of course, the fact that um, the fact that Thanon is going to die is being sung about here several chapters before it occurs. And you know, this is, and there's, there's no, this isn't a slip. I mean, this isn't, a, and this isn't an accident. It's quite ostentatiously presented as, here's a song that was sung years after the events that are that 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 the story is telling right now. Okay, we lost a couple minutes here, but we return again with a question by Jordan. You asked why would someone do this, and I, I would say, having read a lot of Tolkien work like on fairy stories, you, I think he would ask why wouldn't you do this if your goal is to. As Tolkien would think, to create a secondary world where you want people to be immersed and not take breaks and say, hey, I wonder who Turin is, and lose sight of the narrative, you have to have this level in order to have a fully immersed and real experience as, as, a, as a storyteller and story audience. I, I think that's right, but it's, it's interesting that no one did it before in any systematic way. I mean, there's some little things like Jules Verne and the found manuscript tradition, and, and really very well done by... Um, H.P. Lovecraft and those you know books that don't exist. I sometimes want to write a book called "Quotations from Books That Don't Exist." H.P. Lovecraft and then Frank Herbert and these other yeah. people like you know quote books that the Necronomicon and, and so forth. <laughs> but you know, and no one's and the thing is that no one's really done it since. People have tried. Ursula Le Guin does, I think, the best job in the Earthsea books, written you know still the latest one that's not that old, but the first one was written in 68, so she's fairly close to Tolkien, he was still alive, and, you know, people will say to me, well, what about Neil Gaiman, what about George R. R. Martin, but they don't do this. They're very good at other things in fantasy, they've taken it in other directions. Why is it that Tolkien is like this giant looming shadow and no one can figure out? It seems like some major fantasy writers have to write their, their terrible Tolkien ripoff before they can write an original book. I mean, Terry Brooks' Sword of Shannara, which was a, a major publishing event because it was the first, like, epic fantasy that is so bad. And that, alas, is where the equipment utterly failed. 
In talking about Terry Brooks as an example here, Professor Drought went on to emphasize how much more interesting Brooks's second book, The Elfstones of Shannara, was compared to the first one, leading Professor Drought to speculate that many modern fantasy writers seem to need to get one Tolkien derivative novel out of their systems before they can go on to do their own thing. We did have a brief discussion of Shelob's lair and the fight between Sam and Shelob, but we didn't really get a chance to do it justice, and I shan't spoil the scene with a half-hearted attempt to do so here. I will probably come back to Shelob a little bit when we return to Sam and Frodo at the beginning of Book 6. In the next class, we will discuss the kingliness of Aragorn and that greatest of Tolkienian eucatastrophes, the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.